It should be at the doors when you're coming in. All right, well, good morning. Fruit of a new heart. That's what we're going to be talking about this morning in this series on matters of the heart, a biblical theology of the heart, a practical theology of the heart, where a couple weeks ago we looked at just the evidence of a new heart, of faith and repentance. Last week we talked about the transformation of a new heart and just the, the truths of sanctification. And this week we're going to talk about the fruit of a new heart, what the gospel promises to bear in us and from us as the Spirit of God takes over greater and greater rule inside of us. And so let's go to the Lord in prayer as we jump in. <clears throat> well, Father, we come to you this morning seeking you at a time when you may be found. We call upon you while you are near, and you promise to be near. Help us to forsake our wicked ways. Help us to forsake unrighteous thoughts. Help us to return to you, knowing that you will have compassion upon us, knowing that you are a God who abundantly pardons. And yet we confess that your thoughts are not our thoughts. Your ways are not our ways. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so your thoughts are above our thoughts. And your ways are above our ways. And yet we hold to this promise that as even the rain and the snow come down from heaven at your voice, at your decree, and they don't return without watering the earth, making it bring forth vegetation and sprout that which you design it to grow. So as your word goes out from your mouth, it will not return to you empty, but it will most certainly accomplish the purpose for which you sent it. And so we pray that your good purposes would prevail in us this morning, that your word would bear much fruit in us for your namesake, for our good. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Although the world does not aim to please God, nor the unregenerate heart aim to bear fruit for the glory of God, every human being throughout the world, in my opinion at least, is seeking some version of the fruit that is promised to us in Jesus Christ. That is, everyone seeks some version of love honors some version of love in their lives. Everybody pursues some version of peace, some version of joy, some version of you know, what we call deep and abiding happiness in someone or something. Everybody's seeking it. There's a kind of peace that the world offers and people want it. Whatever that peace supposedly is. Really, every therapeutic system in the world, every self-help system in the world offers you some version of peace, some version of joy, some version of self-control. If you do this, here's what you will get. Some version of hope. Really, the aim of anti-anxiety medication is some version of peace, right? Trying to give you some sense of rest, some feeling of rest. The objective of vacation packages and car dealerships and even the latest sort of blockbuster movies is to deliver some kind of contentment, some kind of joyfulness, some kind of pleasure, some kind of happiness. Every drug and alcohol rehab program in the world is offering some version of self-control, some version of freedom from whatever this created thing is that's enslaving me. And even no matter how opposed, I think, to biblical marriage the world becomes, there's still this remnant of respect in every society, but even in this society, for marriages that endure. I was reading recently this interview with Jeff Bridges, the actor, who's now been married almost 40 years to his wife. You're not a professing Christian, and, and this magazine interviewing him is not, but they're asking, okay, what's the key to a, a long and happy marriage? And he said, love each other and don't get divorced. Those were the two things he said. Love each other and don't get divorced. And the magazine closed the article by saying, wise words from a wise man. You almost want to say, do you believe that? And I think in one sense, the world looks at that and goes, yes, that's a beautiful thing. Faithfulness in marriage. And yet, how hard it is to actually be faithful. 
and I would even argue in many ways almost impossible to be faithful without the Spirit of God in us. The most impatient people in the world appreciate patience from others, right? No matter how impatient we are, we love patience received. The harsh and aggressive like to be treated with gentleness. You know, the man or woman enslaved to alcohol, enslaved to drugs, enslaved to whatever it may be, appreciates in some way self-control and hope and desires for those things. But I think what the world cannot accept or appreciate and can certainly not help us with is that the only road to bear such fruit is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the world can't see. It's the only way. It's the only life. It's the only tree that you can actually abide in that bears fruit, real fruit, a fruit that remains, a fruit that lasts. Elected officials can't give it to you. Beautifully elected officials can't take it from you. A government can't help you bear fruit. It's not going to take away your fruit. That's the good news of the gospel. It's from above. It's from God. It's from his spirit. It comes from a person who doesn't regard earthly things anyway. God doesn't care what's going on in our circumstances. He can bear fruit in us and through us. John 15, 16, Jesus says, you do not choose me, speaking to the disciples, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, meaning should remain, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So Jesus is saying, you didn't choose me, I chose you, and I chose you to redeem you, to save you, that you would go bear fruit, and that fruit that you bear would remain. Now, the immediate fruit he's talking about is that you're going to go make disciples. You're going to go bear that kind of spiritual fruit, but also he means all the rest of the fruit that comes from abiding in him, that comes from being filled with the Spirit of God, and that's what we're going to talk about this morning. What does the gospel promise to bear in you? What is the fruit of a new heart that is united to Christ and filled with the Spirit? Because when we stop to consider what everyone in the world seems to be seeking, even expending their precious hours of life pursuing, we could say that, okay, what the whole world is seeking is something that's only found in Jesus Christ. Only found by being filled with the Spirit of God. Only something that God can deliver. Even when we consider the label mental disorder that's thrown around and mental disease everywhere in the world today, especially in Western civilization, Western culture. We see that many of the labels, many of the ideas, many of the things that are seen as, okay, this is, this is a problem in human life. This is a trouble in human life. What we find is they're often at the very opposite end of the human spectrum to the fruit of the spirit. That all, you read all the symptoms of major depressive labels and all those things that are under that, and you realize, okay, this is sort of the opposite side of the spectrum from fruit of hope and joy and peace. You see all the anxiety diagnoses and all the mental disorders that fall under anxiety. You realize, okay, this is the opposite side of what the Spirit is promising in peace and in rest and in joy. Yeah, the drug addiction runs in sort of the opposite direction to Spirit-produced love and self-control. Road rage and bitterness operate on the other side of the spectrum from God-given gentleness and kindness. Now, but here's the thing we need to remember. We all battle those things in life. We all struggle with some of those very kinds of features. But that's not to say that that we're not filled with the Spirit of God or not united to Christ. It just means sanctification is slow. Being conformed to the image of Christ takes time. That that fruit being born in us, like any kind of fruit farming, takes labor takes time. I mean, you just think about farming, what you can do in a year, but what God is doing in our hearts spiritually is something significantly longer than that, deeper than that, more difficult than that. So I want us to consider this morning the fruit of a new heart, of being born again and filled with the Spirit, of abiding in Christ, being adopted into His family. So we're going to kind of look at three big sections. I don't like the titles of these, So just ignore them if you have to, but personal spiritual fruit is kind of one thing we're going to talk about from Galatians 5, but also corporate spiritual fruit from Ephesians 5, and what I call kind of foundational spiritual fruit, because these are things that aren't necessarily called fruit in the scripture, but then the way they're talked about very much looks at, okay, this is the fruit, the byproduct 
of being filled with the Spirit of God and united to Christ. So turn with me, if you would, to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5 is a passage we've been in before. I'll spend some time in this morning. Any questions so far before we jump into Galatians 5? Verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. It's a promise. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you do not do the things that you please. Anybody here feel that? That there's a war going on inside you? That the spirit is moving it's sort of in one direction, that the sinful flesh is moving in another, so that you just feel that conflict, so that we don't do the things that we please, meaning the good things, we don't think the things, feel the things, relate in the ways that we really want to. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under law, you're under a new law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. In case that wasn't a long enough list. Paul says, and everything remotely looking like it. But look at even that list. I mean, sorcery, we go, okay, well, I don't think I'd do that. But sensuality, idolatry, okay, I don't bow down to statues, but impurity, idolatries of the heart. You see the comprehensiveness of this list that he says, okay, these are the deeds of the flesh. These are the evidences that the sinful flesh is actually what's ruling us in a particular moment. Just as I forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, meaning those whose lives are defined by those things, by those patterns who make a habit of practicing them without repentance, without faith, that theirs won't be the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So what we'll do is just kind of walk through each of those to talk about, okay, these are real fruit of the Spirit of God filling us, the evidence that we're walking in the Spirit of God. Beginning with love, which some commentators believe this is sort of the summary word for the whole list. That some would like to translate this, okay, love, colon, joy, peace, patience. That we see Jonathan Edwards sees love here as sort of the overarching word and fruit that includes all the other ones. But love refers to joyful self-sacrifice for the true good of others. That's what love is. Joyful self-sacrifice for the true good of others. God is love, 1 John 4, 8. Which means that giving himself, sharing himself, joyfully self-sacrificing himself for the good of others defines his character. This is why it's important that, okay, God is triune. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which is why he's eternally other-oriented, eternally self-sacrificing, eternally loving of other. In other words, he didn't start loving with the creation of Adam. No, he is eternity past loving. The Father loving the Son, loving the Spirit. The Spirit loving the Father. The Son loving the Father. It's part of God's character. It's not a fleeting emotion. It's not a mere choice of actions, but a quality of heart, a condition of heart that expresses itself in millions of little details, millions of self-sacrificing thoughts, emotions, actions, putting other first, considering other more valuable, being willing to serve other, give to other, not be self-absorbed, We need to realize that God is the only source of genuine love. The only source of hope in this particular area. That once sin entered the world, he's the only way to actually become a loving person. This is, yeah, this is important in the world in which we live that sings about love all the time. 
talks about love all the time, talks about what is or isn't loving all the time. At the end of the day, if you really want to know what love is, we must go study God. We must watch Jesus in action, listen to how he talks, watch the way he interacts. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. Joy, which refers to deep happiness in God and gladness in his gifts. It's one way to think about it. Deep happiness in God and gladness in his gifts. You know, some may say that, okay, God doesn't want you to be happy. He wants you to be holy. I think it's a terrible statement. Please don't say that. Don't believe it. Because God doesn't see the difference between holiness and happiness. That he thinks holy, happiness is found in holiness. Because he is eternally happy and he's perfectly holy. He doesn't see the conflict. And whatever version we have of happiness that is absent of holiness isn't really happiness anyway. But rather joy is deep happiness in God. God wants you to be eternally happy. But that comes by being happy in him. Glad in his gifts. This is Ezra 6.22. They kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. You know, they kept this feast, this thing that God had commanded them to do. This feast of unleavened bread for seven days. Unleavened bread. And it says, with joy. They loved it. And can you imagine seven days of feasting without brisket? No smoked chicken. No, no, it's just the stuff that they would have celebrated in the, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And they did it with joy. For, and here's why, for the Lord had made them joyful. What a statement. The Lord made them joyful. And had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. So their joy is firstly in God, but their joy is also in God's provision of favor from this Assyrian king who's helping them build the temple. Helping them return all these exiles to the land. Their joy is in the opportunity to gather in worship of God. And so the joy of the Holy Spirit always produces rejoicing. That's why we gather as a church, hear the preaching of the word, pray together, and we sing, and all that's supposed to be with joy. Because of joy in God. Because of joy in the gifts of God. Because of joy in the opportunity to celebrate the, the salvation that we receive from God. And so we're meant to be the most joyful people in all the world. Doesn't mean we're never sad. In fact, that's one of the great juxtapositions of Scripture is that you can be sorrowful yet rejoicing. You can actually have both at the same time. It's one of the real mysteries of what the gospel produces in us. Sorrowful yet rejoicing. Heavy laden and burdened and yet full of happiness in God. It's one of the real testimonies to the power of the gospel is that our circumstances can be painful and difficult and yet our hearts full of joy. Peace, which refers to the absence of turmoil and the presence of harmony. The removal of conflict and infusion of genuine rest. And you realize this is firstly a condition of heart, not a condition of circumstances. It's firstly a vertical peace with God, not a horizontal peace with the world. John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. This is Jesus talking to his disciples. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let your hearts not be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. So there's a kind of peace Jesus is saying that I'm going to give you that the world doesn't understand, doesn't comprehend, can't give you, can't help you with. And this is before he goes and gets crucified. And there's this whole other kind of peace I'm going to give to you that is beyond comprehension because it's not a peace that comes from circumstances. It's not a peace from, that comes from getting everything that you want. It's the peace that comes directly from the Spirit of God abiding in you, directly from knowing that you are adopted by God, forgiven by God in Christ with an inheritance in heaven. The peace the world offers is an ease of circumstances, an empty promise of external safety. 
protection. The peace Christ offers you is reconciliation to God, forgiveness of your sins, his righteousness imputed to you, adoption into his family, knowing he'll never leave you or forsake you, knowing that on the other side of the grave he's waiting for you, knowing that you'll dwell forever in his presence full of joy and perfect worship and communion. That's peace. Assurance of his power, assurance of his presence, guarantee of deliverance, and the promise of future everlasting rest. That's peace. So again, you think about the temptation there is to go seek peace in something other than God. To seek joy in something other than God. And we need to realize how committed God is to making sure that doesn't work for you. Like, he loves us so much, he will not let us find joy and peace in idols. He won't let us find joy and peace in empty promises, in created things, in anyone other than himself. In other words, God is great at frustrating us, frustrating all of our efforts to bear spiritual fruit from bad seed. Patience, which refers to the glad endurance of difficulty in order to obtain a future reward. The glad endurance of some burden, some hardship, some difficulty in order to obtain a future reward. It's willingness to suffer over the long haul, trusting that God is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison. That's why the word patience here can be translated long-suffering. That it's patience from the spirit that we need to resist temptations to sexual immorality or licentiousness, or drug and alcohol abuse, or suicidal impulses, or casting ourselves into video games and television, and all these things that it's actually impatience that often compels us, because we're suffering, or we're afflicted, and we're looking for some escape, some bomb in the world, something to run to, to give us comfort, to give us ease, to give us whatever it might be. It's actually patience, it's long-suffering from the Spirit of God that allows us to, okay, sit under a painful circumstance and not have to escape, not have to run away. Entrusting ourselves to the care of our Redeemer, to the strength of our Redeemer, to the timing of our Redeemer. That's why Peter promises in 1 Peter 5, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace will restore you. What's the little while he's talking about? What time frame does he have in mind when he says little while? Just shout it out. Yeah, your life, your, your earthly life. That's what he means by after you've suffered a little while, just this little mist of time on the earth, God himself will restore you. Now, suffering doesn't feel that way, right, in the moment? We don't, when in pain, we don't go, wow, this isn't taking long at all. Like five minutes is five minutes too long. And that's why we need the spirit. That's why this isn't a grit thing. This isn't a militaristic, I just need to go out and train physically to endure this. No, this is a spiritual training. This is an abiding in Christ training. This is a walking in the spirit that Paul's talking about that allows us to suffer long under trouble. Kindness refers to expressions and gestures of generosity and compassion. That's what kindness is. It's a quality of heart, again, that sees itself as richly blessed by God and therefore eager to bless others with what God has given. Like we reflect on the kindness of God for us and therefore we put on a heart of kindness. We reflect on, okay, God forgiving us and we forgive others. How God has blessed us, we bless others. How God has strengthened us, so we strengthen others. That kindness, again, is a fruit of the Spirit dwelling in us that's fed by thinking about how deeply God has been kind to us. Goodness, which refers to purity and righteousness and holiness of character 
We get this from Exodus 33:19, where the Lord promised Moses, I will surely cause all my goodness to pass before you. So Moses prays, Lord, show me your glory, which is one of the great prayers of the whole Bible. Moses prays, Lord, show me your glory. And God says, basically, yes, I will cause all my goodness to pass before you. Isn't that interesting? Show me your glory. I'll show you my goodness. The glory of God, so much of it is wrapped up in his goodness. Then here's what he says in Exodus 34. He's going to come before Moses and he's going to declare his name. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That's God saying, I'll show you my goodness. And here it is. It's his steadfast love and his faithfulness. It's his, it's his mercy and his graciousness. It's his slowness to anger. It's his forgiveness. It's all those things wrapped up, and it's just called good. That's why when somebody comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, remember what he says in response? What's his question he has for them? Why do you call me good? What a, you imagine that, getting that question response? Hey, good friend, why do you call me good? Now, he's not going to dispute it. He's just getting at what do you think you're saying? He's going to say, do you not know that there's no one good but God? Which isn't at all discounting that he's good. He's actually saying, yeah, God's with you. God's here. You're right to call me good. But why do you call me good? Do you call me good because you know I'm God? Or do you call me good because you have some false understanding of what good is? Well, good is the very character of God. They feed his overall goodness, all those aspects of his character. So for him to share his goodness with us through his indwelling spirit is for him to make us more merciful and gracious, to make us more steadfast in our love, to make us more faithful to make us slower to anger, to make us more forgiving. Those are all fruit of the Spirit. Him conforming us to the image of Christ and thereby making us more good over time. Or faithfulness, which just means holding to your word no matter what the cost. Keeping your promises no matter what the cost. So if we vow to follow Jesus, then we follow Jesus no matter what the cost. Even though we're going to stumble, we're going to fall, we're going to wander, but then the Spirit's going to convict us, humble us, bring us to repentance, to return. By God's grace, we keep our word to our spouses, to our friends, to our children, to our neighbors. And again, we realize this isn't a work of personal grit and ability. This is a fruit of the Spirit, to be faithful. So did we really grasp that when we got married? You know, standing there at the altar, if you're married here, and giving these vows to your spouse, did you really comprehend what you were doing? I would argue most of us don't, which is why we're smiling so much. We don't understand what we're saying when we vow to love to the very end, to be faithful to the very end, that what we're actually vowing to do is impossible for a human being without the grace of God. That's why we hopefully pray in our wedding ceremonies. When we bring children into the world and just the responsibility of, okay, being faithful to them. Can we join a church and enter into a covenant together as a body of believers? We're saying, okay, here's my word. Here are my vows to the congregation. Here's the covenant we're entering into that I'm saying, I'll be faithful to this. Have we really read that list of what we're saying? We ought to go, oh, Lord have mercy. Lord, please help me. I don't have capacity to be faithful to this. Psalm 15, 1, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. What a standard. Not just speaks truth outwardly, but the way you talk in the quietness of your own mind is always truthful who does not slander with his tongue, does not 
do any evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. That's faithfulness. Even when they make a vow, even if it's costly, they don't change. And that's why we see this more than anything in the personal work of Jesus Christ, right? He's, he's going to honor the Father. He's going to do the will of the Father. And what's that going to cost him? It'll cost him his life. It'll cost him even the glory that he enjoyed before the foundation of the world, the glory he enjoyed before he took on human flesh. He's going to lay that aside where he's just hearing holy, holy, holy all day long, all the time. He's going to come to earth where he's going to hear crucify him, crucify him. He's going to give up that and take on this and then give his life as a ransom for many. Faithfulness. Gentleness refers to a disposition of meekness and quietness rather than harshness and severity. It's, it's the very opposite of abusiveness. Disposition of meekness and quietness rather than harshness and severity. It begins with a gentle and quiet spirit with a meekness of heart that then expresses itself in tenderness to others. That's why there's even so much talk this, in this day and age about, okay, we need to get rid of all power. You know, if you've ever heard, we need to get rid of power structures, we need to get rid of hierarchies. We need, as if the structures and the hierarchies and the power is the problem. Rather than the hearts of all the people in it. We've always been the problem, which is what the world doesn't see. Not power structures, not hierarchy. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit have never had an issue in their own relationship with headship, submission, honoring one another, all those kinds of things. We are the problem. It's when you put humans into it. And this is one of the reasons why. It's just the fruit of gentleness. This is why we abuse power. This is why we abuse position. This is why we mistreat others. And that's what the gospel is reworking in us. To bear in us the fruit of gentleness. Though Jesus is a lion, he knows how to be tender with sheep. I mean, to think about, he is the judge of the universe. And yet he knows how to care for children. He knows how to receive them with gentleness. He is gentle and lowly. Matthew eleven twenty nine. that's the promise, right? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, who are just under this oppressive rule of the spiritual leadership of the day. They're just giving you rules and condemnation and judgment and oh, come to me who are weary and heavy laden of all that. And I'll give you rest. Because he's gentle, he's lowly, he's meek. Self-control which refers to restraining fleshly desires while acting upon godly desires. It's both of those. Restraining fleshly desires, acting upon godly desires. Because the sinful flesh desires many things that are contrary to the word of God. Self-control says no. The spirit of God in us desires many things that honor the word of God, follow the word of God. And self-control from the spirit actually compels us to do them. The Spirit strives to exalt Christ, to glory in Christ, to speak of Christ, to give thanks to Christ, to direct our energies toward the kingdom of Christ. In other words, the Spirit compels us, and the Spirit also restrains us. The Spirit gives the fruit, the gift of, okay, self-control. Any questions on these fruit, these sort of personal spiritual fruit of the Spirit? Questions, comments, thoughts? Yeah, so the question is, okay, there's each of these fruit, and do they only necessarily come fully together or absent together, or, or at times do, do one sort of abound a little bit more in your life than another? And I, and I think yes. I mean, I think it's almost like, I don't know much about audio boards, but I, I've seen those audio boards that have all these dials that you move up and down on it, and it's like in any given moment, there's certain fruit that seems to be 
more expressed in your life than others and certain that are, that are trailing. Um, and I think some of that's going to be just how God has designed sanctification to work. Where he's just going to encourage you in some areas where, where just you or others are going to see growth in gentleness, growth in con- kindness, but lagging in self-control or lagging in faithfulness in ways. I think it humbles us. I think it reminds us of our need for the Lord. I think it means we appreciate one another more and more because we need each other more than we thought to kind of balance out areas where we lack. Um, But in some way, all of them will be advancing. However slow, if we're filled with the Spirit of God, if we're united to Christ, if we're being sanctified in the truth over time, they will be advancing. They will be growing. It's just and we'll get to this later, it's just hard to express how slow this can be, how long this can take. Because sometimes we'll read passages like this and go, all right, great, read it, here I go. And I've prayed for it, God, do this. And sometimes our prayers are like so extreme and triumphalistic. All right, Lord, perfect this in me today. And then we go out and we last about 23 minutes and whatever the circumstances comes, it just exposes some, some fruit that ain't quite fully ripened. But in those aren't moments where we're meant to be discouraged and just quit, but rather to, to see how much we need to abide in Christ. Not just sort of fill up on Christ a little and then go on our own for six days, but literally remain in him every single day. Talk to him every single day, receiving from his word every single day, being cared for and sharpened by members of the church every single day. Yeah, anything else? Any other questions, comments? Corporate spiritual fruit, though I think the fruit, the personal spiritual fruit we just looked at is also kind of has relational corporate implications. I think there's also other fruit that we see in scripture that is actually corporate fruit in the body of Christ when the Spirit of God is indwelling us. Turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 5, we'll be in verse 18, Ephesians 5, where Paul says, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, which actually is a great, you see here, a great contrast in, in definition of what being filled with the Spirit is. If you ever wonder, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? Think about, what does it mean to be drunk with wine? If you're drunk with wine, what does that mean? What's the wine doing? It's taking control of you. You're under its influence. You're filled with it in a way that's affecting how you think, affecting how you feel, affecting how you see reality, affecting how you relate to other people. And so don't be drunk with wine. Don't be under the control of but rather be under the control of the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. And here's what's going to happen when you do. So there's the imperative. The the one imperative verb here is be filled with the Spirit. The next four things he's going to say are all participles in the Greek text, meaning they're all subject to being filled with the Spirit. In other words, everything else he's going to say you can't do on your own. You can only accomplish by being filled with the Spirit of God. Beginning with addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, which is a call to speak to one another with biblical words, to speak to one another with joyful words that are actually shaped and filled by Scripture, where we know the Word of God enough, we're in the Word of God enough, that it actually provides the vocabulary for how we talk to each other, actually provides the tone and the shape for our conversations with hopeful words motivated by the gospel. Now listen to Galatians 5, 13 through 15. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. That there is the opposite of what addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs is. That when we address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, it means we're addressing one another with the hope of the gospel, the words of the gospel, the joyful things of God's word, that which is encouraging. 
so that we don't devour each other, but rather build each other up. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. This is a call to raise our voices, beginning with our hearts together in corporate worship and song, but also our physical voices. And not simply in the weekly gathering of the church, but in our life groups, around our tables together. You just think about when a group of Christians get together and they start their time together by singing, Come Thou Fount, or Rock of Ages, or Amazing Grace, or In Christ Alone, or fill in the blank, it immediately changes the atmosphere of that gathering. It immediately affects how you relate to the people that are there. And that's somewhat Paul's getting at. Singing and making melodies, starting with your heart, in your heart, because in order to really, because who are we singing to when we do this? To God, right? Who are we exalting? Christ. Who are we fixing our eyes upon? Christ, whose virtues are we extolling? Whose glories are we seeing and singing about? There's something about when a group of people all gather around him that way, it's unifying. It's encouraging. It's humbling. And that's not what the world does when they gather. Today, just like yesterday, there'll there'll be gatherings in football stadiums around TVs. And there's singing that's happening. There's music happening in football stadiums. There's a priesthood on the field. There is worship happening. I like to say that sports in America is the largest false religion we have. There's priesthood, there's sanctuaries and temples, there's singing and music, there's worship happening. But it's not Jesus. And that's not what we're singing about. And that affects the atmosphere. That's why there's so much anger. (laughs) Annihilation. That's why there's such extremes, depending on whatever that outcome may be. But when a group of people gather to see and sing about Jesus, to glory in him and extol him, to meditate on his work for our salvation, to focus our eyes on him and delight in him together, to celebrate what we have together, that's a very different kind of atmosphere. And that's what the Spirit's trying to produce in the church. Gathering us together, uniting us together to worship Christ. Gathering us together to, to receive the word and to delight in it. Gathering us together to be, to be God's people, to be formed more and more into his image. But also giving thanks always and for everything. How many of you wish it didn't say that quite so extremely? Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What a statement. I mean, do you give thanks always for everything? Which doesn't mean, okay, the the worst things that happen to you, you're you're giving thanks just merely for it in and of itself, but rather you're appreciating there's something God's going to do in this. In this painful trial, there's something God's producing that's glorious. And so I'm going to give him thanks. Apparently, he thinks this is helpful to me. Apparently, he thinks this will make me more like him. Apparently, he thinks this will humble me and conform me to his image. Apparently, he thinks this will purify me and prepare me for heaven. And so can give thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't think he's exaggerating. But rather, that's what the Spirit produces. Again, we can't just get up in the morning and go, okay, here I go, I'm going to do it. No, be filled with the Spirit. Be so influenced by the Spirit that you're just thankful all the time. And you're giving thanks all the time. And you're seeing everything in your life as so much under the control of God's hand. So that no matter what happens in elections, no matter what happens with pandemics, no matter what happens with schools and education or health, he really means that you can give thanks always in everything, that that's part of the fruit being born in our lives as a body of people. That's what we're meant to get together and do. That's why next time you get together with a bunch of believers around a table somewhere, just take the time and say, hey, let's just take time and just give thanks to God for things. And don't just make them merely circumstantial. 
I just thank God that it's cooled off now and that it fall is here and it's 73 degrees. It's great to give thanks to God for, but go deeper. Give thanks for forgiveness, for imputed righteousness, for an inheritance in heaven, for salvation, for God himself, for fill in the blank. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Just to think about that. That our submission to each other as a body of believers is out of reverence for Christ. Not because we think everybody else is right. Not because we think everybody else is impressive. Not because we think, okay, the whole church all the time and decisions and things nailed it the way we want them to nail it. Not because we agree, oh yeah, I agree that we should be wearing masks in here. That's not what, no, this is submission to those kinds of things out of reverence for Christ. Because there's a part in Christ that thought becoming a man, becoming a servant, going to the cross and dying didn't sound attractive to him. And that's why in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass, I don't want to drink your wrath. I don't want to absorb your judgment for the sins of the world. He says, but yet not my will, your will be done. That's submission. It's costly. It, it hurts. It's not because, hey, I think this is great. And so that's why he says, out of reverence for Christ. When we refuse to submit in things that we are called to submit in, we're basically saying, I'm better than Jesus. Yeah, I know he had to, but I'm above that. I shouldn't be asked to do stuff, even if he had to do it. And that's irreverent to Christ. That's to put ourselves above Jesus. Yet reverence to Christ says, hey, I'll gladly submit to one another or to others. I'll gladly yield my personal interests and preferences if it's honoring and edifying to others. That's why Paul's going to say, you know, if eating meat causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again. He's not joking. He means it. If the edification of this brother or sister, if their faith in this moment means I don't eat meat here, I won't eat meat. It's, Paul's like, it's just not that big a deal. How many of us can say that? It's just not that big a deal to eat meat. To where we'll say, I just won't eat meat again. If that's what is edifying, I will yield my interests, yield my preferences, yield my personal desires. In eagerness and willingness to yield ourselves to the best interests of the church, to submit ourselves in peripheral matters, to submit ourselves around non-essential points of disagreement. So it doesn't mean that we yield on to Jesus raised from the dead. No, we don't yield on that. It doesn't mean we yield on is Jesus God, or does salvation come by faith alone in Christ alone by grace alone? So there's all these things we don't yield. We don't yield on our statement of faith. Like here's what it means to be a Christian. But there's so much that is involved in the life of the church, so many details that are just preferential. Tastes and styles, differences of opinion. And so when the Spirit is at work in us, when the Spirit is at work in a congregation, there's this willingness to joyfully submit and yield those things to whatever the better interests of others might be. That's why we pray to never fight over budgets. Ever, over wearing masks, over the style of music, over room assignments for Bible studies, over parking, over fill in the blank. If the salvation of souls are not at stake, then we shouldn't argue as if they are. I mean, there's just so much that happens in the world around us that it really, salvation of souls isn't at stake. We can have opinions about those things, express desires about those things, but then never quarrel about those things. It's very different. It's perfectly fine to say, you know, here's my opinion. Here's what I think about it. But then you know what? what the, the Lord's will be done. And then we gladly receive whatever that outcome might be. It's just a mark of the spirit at work in us. Questions, comments, thoughts on the corporate spiritual fruit? All right. Well, foundational spiritual fruit. I don't like this title that I came up with. I didn't know what else to call this. It's just other, other spiritual fruit. Because the fruit of the spirit that we see in Galatians 5 and Ephesians 5, I don't think those are meant to be exhaustive lists. 
I don't think when Paul said, you know, when he gave us that, those two lists, he's like, okay, that's all there is. No, there's, there's many more things we see in Scripture that, okay, these are also fruit of the Spirit of God giving us a new heart, of the Spirit of God uniting us to Christ, of us abiding in Him that deserves our attention. Turn, if you would, to Philippians 2. It's the first of those is humility. In Philippians 2, 5, he says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What is that mind? Well, if there's any encouragement in Christ, verse 1, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, there it is, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Well, how do you get that? Well, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. This is how I came up with the word foundational spiritual fruit. There's all these other fruit, but at the foundation is humility. At the root of all these other things, the key to not having selfish ambition is being humble. To not being conceited is being humble. To being of the same mind with other believers and what really matters is being humble. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And that's the result of being humble. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Meaning you have this in Christ. There's this capacity for humility because of the indwelling Holy Spirit. That if we're walking in the Spirit, we will be increasingly humble over time. But also hope, Romans 5, 1 through 5, if you want to turn there. We see being given new hearts, filled with the love of God through His Spirit, produces hope. Romans 5, 1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. There's that peace. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice. There's the fruit of rejoicing. But in what? In hope of the glory of God. That's part of why I say this is a foundational sort of fruit. The spirit abiding in us produces a kind of hope that compels rejoicing. In hope of the glory of God. Hope that he will take a stand on the earth. Hope that we will see him face to face. Hope that his glory will fill the cosmos. Hope that he will make a new heavens and a new earth. Hope that, you just fill in the blank, all the things about his kingdom coming, his will being done, his glory having its way. Seeing him and enjoying him. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. There it is again, rejoicing and suffering. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. In other words, you're not going to get endurance without suffering. You're not going to learn endurance without suffering. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. Who has been given to us. So because of these new hearts, filled with the Holy Spirit... We can suffer to learn endurance, endurance to produce character, and then character leads to hope, and that hope will not disappoint you. Every other hope in the whole world is going to disappoint you. Hope that you're not going to die. Hope that you're not going to get sick. Hope that your loved ones aren't going to die. Hope that you're going to make a lot of money. Okay, and you may, but then you're going to lose it all. Hope that you feel, whoever, Arkansas has a winning record. I mean, hope that there's just all these ways that disappointment and shame is going to come. And really, what shame is here in this kind of context, shame is the experience of your hopes being dashed. Here's this thing I banked on. Here's this thing I told everybody else to bank on. I told all my friends to invest in this company, to put all their money into this company. And then the following week, it files bankruptcy. And you go look at all those friends. That's shame. The thing that you put your hope in, told everybody to put their hope in, fails. What he's saying here is this hope in God, this hope that his kingdom will prevail, this hope that Jesus will reign over the universe, this hope that he will forgive and justify and receive us to his own, this hope of this eternal inheritance will not put you to shame. 
And everyone you tell to bank their hope on this, everyone you call to repent and to believe, and they do, and they trust and they follow, they will not be put to shame. And on the last day when we're all raised and stand before him, we're all going to look at each other and go, yep, praise God. This is what he promised, and we're not put to shame. There will be a whole other set of people on that day that will be put to shame. That everything they hoped and everything they banked on will be proven futile. And they will have eternity to suffer under the consequences of that. Which is why we call others to repent and believe. This hope will not be put to shame. Perseverance is another. Turn with me, if you would, to Jude. The spirit does not grow tired and weary. The father does not slumber or sleep. The son is ever interceding for us. God is strong, not weak. He's willing to help. And so in our time of weakness, in our time of frailty, in our time of failure, he helps us persevere. Jude 20 and 21. Beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. That's perseverance. Keeping yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life under every kind of circumstance. That it's the Spirit in us that actually does that. That's why we pray in the Holy Spirit, because He's the one who helps us persevere. It's also why we're meant to see this is not a physical strength. Because as the years go on, right, the physical abilities go down. Like my son and I took a couple of appliances to the dump on Saturday. I'm still recovering from that. Just three appliances, one delivery, and I still can't feel my lower back. There's just, so this person, whatever this perseverance is, it's not physical. It's not that side's going to be going down. But it's something internal. It's something of heart. It's something in the mind. It's something that the Spirit is producing inside us. That though the outer form is decaying, the inner person is being renewed, strengthened, persevering. So the implications are, number one, don't trust the world to produce the fruit of the Spirit in your life. Don't trust the world to do that. Don't trust it to produce spiritual fruit in other people's lives. Because there's reasons that people bought 19 million self-help books in this country this year. And it's the promise of fruit. But don't trust the world to produce that. Rather, trust God to produce the fruit of the Spirit in your life and in others' lives. Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this. Paul says that he who begun a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. He will complete it. He will conform you from one degree of glory to the next, to Christ. The Apostle Paul's confidence is God's work in you. So we have to ask ourselves, is that, is that my confidence? Am I realizing, okay, the way to joy is to be in Christ, to walk in the Spirit. The way to greater peace is to be ruled by the Spirit of God. Again, it's realizing that, that none of us are there yet. We're going to struggle with anxieties. We're going to battle with despair. We're going to wrestle with anger and bitterness and frustration. There's going to be all these things that are going to claw at us and hammer on us until the day we die. But rather, there's this work the Spirit is doing in us that helps us become increasingly peaceful, increasingly joyful, increasingly loving, increasingly kind and gentle with each passing day. Final questions, comments, thoughts? Before I pray for us, Dan. Yeah, yeah, I think the, so the question is, if it's all of the spirit, why does he say, let go and let God? I think the first reason because, is because the Bible doesn't tell you to do that. So it says, yes, it's all of the spirit and you better work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And so it's one of those glorious, beautiful mysteries that you just accept both of them. That God calls us to repent and believe, and yet God is entirely sovereign over re repenting and believing. And there's something in of us that goes, okay, that doesn't make logical sense, but nor does the incarnation. 
or the resurrection of the dead, or a lot of things that to our feeble minds don't seem to go together, and yet they, they do. I remember somebody asked, you know, I don't remember it, I wasn't there when they asked Spurgeon, but somebody asked Spurgeon, you know, how do I reconcile the sovereignty of God with the free will of man, or with the man to, to, to believe and decide? And, and um, Spurgeon replied, why would you need to reconcile good friends? That his, his, and what he meant is, they're not in conflict. It's just to us that seems like they're in conflict. So the idea that this is the spirit of God working something out in us doesn't mean we just lay back. It means, no, we're, this is a relationship. So it's him working at us, in us, therefore work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Believing and reading and praying and gathering and singing and all these things that the spirit is producing, but that yet we are responding to and re- responsible to respond to. Yeah. Anything else? All right. Well, let me pray for us. Well, Father, we do rejoice in this work that you're doing in us. We do look to you as the author and the giver of every good and perfect gift. We do give you glory and praise for the great love with which you've loved us in Christ. We do acknowledge our need for you to fill us, to strengthen us, to help us. We do pray that you would give us um, greater faith, greater joy, greater peace, greater love for you and one another. We do pray that you would help us as a congregation to be united in Christ, to fix our eyes upon Jesus together to sing for his glory together, to submit to one another out of reverence for him, to give thanks always and for everything because of the great things that you are doing in this universe, the great things that you will promise to continue doing, the great things that will certainly come about in your course of time for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name we pray, amen.